And please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. And I'm going to read and preach verses 13 through 23 this morning, finishing up this part of the book that has been about the early years of Jesus before we turn the corner to his adulthood and public ministry, which comes in chapter 3. And what we have before us this morning is three vignettes about the providential preservation of Jesus' life, which was under threat from Herod the king and later Archelaus, his son. But God the Father preserved and protected the life of his son, as we'll see. And one of the ways this relates to us is that because Jesus' life was providentially preserved, he was able to go on to carry out his ministry and his mission, which was to save us from our sins. So his preservation led to our salvation. He was able to go on to live a life of perfect obedience on our behalf, fulfilling all righteousness, and then die a death on the cross in our place as the substitute sacrifice for sinners. All that was threatened by Herod and his son Archelaus. But God preserved the life of his son so that he could go on to live and die for us, to save us from our sin and to give us eternal life. So his preservation led to our salvation. We'll consider that and many other things from this passage together, but before we begin, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and for the fact that it is living and active, for the fact that it is inspired by you and inerrant and it is the ultimate authority in our lives. And we thank you also that it is sweeter than honey and more to be desired than gold. So help us to taste the sweetness of your word and to desire your word in our hearts, especially as it reveals to us more about our Savior and how his life was providentially preserved so that he could go on to do what he was born to do, to save his people from their sins. Help us now to understand your word and to apply your word to our hearts and our lives by the enabling grace of your spirit and for the glory of your Son. We pray in his name, amen. Matthew chapter two, reading verse 13 down through verse 23, the end of the chapter. This is the word of God given to us through Matthew. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, And flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled 
what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Like I said, there are three vignettes here about the providential preservation of Jesus' life. We'll look first at down to Egypt in verses 13 through 15, then death in Bethlehem, verses 16 through 18, and finally dwelling in Nazareth, verse 19 through 23. So first, down to Egypt. We read again in verse 13. Now when they had departed, they meaning the wise men who had come to visit Jesus to worship him, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now this happens several times in the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, as you may have already noticed. Back in chapter one, verse 20, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. In chapter two, verse 12, an angel appears to the wise men in a dream. In verse 13 here, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream a second time. Down in verse 19, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream a third time. And down in verse 22, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream a fourth time. God is gracious to give Joseph and the wise men direct and specific guidance and instruction so that the life of his son can be preserved and protected. God does not reveal himself to us by means of dreams today. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased, as our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, based on passages like Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, and 2 Peter 1, 19. And the revelation he has given us in his word, in the fullness of Holy Scripture, is sufficient to fill us with the wisdom we need to make life's decisions. But in this case, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, middle of verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, which was outside the reach of Herod since he wasn't the ruler of Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So God, who knows the future, knows that Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him, and so he tells Joseph to take the child, Jesus, and Mary, and flee to Egypt, go down to Egypt stay there until he receives further instructions. And notice how Joseph responds, much like he did at the end of chapter one. He obeys right away, verse 14. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. We note briefly here that he didn't delay to obey because delayed obedience is disobedience. Parents and children, this is important to remember that delayed obedience is disobedience. So kids, if your parents tell you to do something, I think you know that you should do it right away, right? Because if you don't do it right away, think about it, whose will are you doing? Not doing God's will, you're doing your own will. But remember what Jesus said when he was praying to the Father in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done, Father. And of course, with his help, you can say the same. Not my will, Jesus, but yours be done. With his help, you can obey right away, like Joseph did. Parents, we should hold our kids to this, graciously but consistently, for their good spiritually. And we should, of course, obey right away too. All of us should obey right away, like we see Joseph doing here. So it says, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And then it says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Here he's quoting Hosea 11, verse one. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son which is a reference to the Exodus when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, when God brought his child, his son, as it were, the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And Matthew is saying that what happened with the Exodus foreshadowed what happened with Jesus. Just like God brought his son, as it were, the nation of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, So God brought his ultimate son, Jesus Christ, out of Egypt after the death of Herod. Jesus went down to Egypt to escape from Herod, and then he came out of Egypt after Herod died. Out of Egypt, God the Father called his son. Now, I think this teaches us three things about Jesus. First, that he is the son of God. Of course, he is in one sense the son of Mary and Joseph, but that's with regard to his human nature. With regard to his divine nature, he's the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternally begotten son of the Father, like we sang about earlier. As we profess in the Nicene Creed, he is the only begotten son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what we learn here. So many times in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've already seen this, it'll say something like, this took place to fulfill this prophecy in the Old Testament, or something along those lines. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the promised offspring of Abraham. He is the promised king in the line of David. Every sacrifice pointed ahead to his once for all sacrifice. Every priest pointed ahead to his permanent priesthood. Every king pointed ahead to his perfect kingship. And other events and themes in the Old Testament like the Exodus or the wilderness wanderings or the tabernacle or the temple, they are all a bunch of fingers pointing to Christ. And when we see them as fingers pointing to Christ, we can read and understand and appreciate the Old Testament more fully because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The third thing we learn here about Jesus is that he identifies with his people. Just like Israel was the son of God, he is the son of God. Just like they went down to Egypt and then were called out of Egypt, he went down to Egypt and was then called out of Egypt. Just like we are men, human beings, he became a man, even a baby and then a young child. And he did all of that to identify with his people, to become one of us, yet without sin, so that he could save us from our sin. Listen to Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. In the words from the front of our bulletin from Hebrews 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and Jesus identifies with his people. That's what we learn in this first vignette, down to Egypt. The second vignette is very sad and sobering death in Bethlehem. Let's look at that now together. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, remember he had tried to trick them, when you find him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
But in the end, they had tricked him by departing to their own country by another way after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In light of the size of Bethlehem at the time, as far as we know, there were perhaps 20 or 30 boys who were killed in this horrible and evil act of rage and rebellion against the Lord's anointed. But God preserved and protected his anointed from the fury of Herod. God gave Herod his authority, Romans 13, 1, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. But instead of using his authority for good, he misused it for great evil. He abused those under his authority. He turned Romans 13 into Revelation 13, becoming like the beast who has power and authority and who makes war on the saints. He made war on the Savior. And even though he missed his target, he hit many others, killing all the male children to and under in Bethlehem and in all that region. Whatever authority we have from God as a husband, as a mother, as an elder, as a supervisor, we should use it for the good of others. We should not abuse others and use it for our own good. We should use it for the good of others. We shouldn't be like Herod. We should be like Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep. Another prophecy is fulfilled in this second vignette. Look at verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, and he quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The note in my study Bible explains Jeremiah used personification to describe the mothers of Israel, quote unquote, Rachel, mourning for their children who had been removed from the land and carried off into exile, leaving Israel no longer a nation and considered dead. Like the exile, the attempt on Jesus' life was intended to wipe out the chosen one of God. So again, we have prophecy being fulfilled in what took place during the early years of Jesus' life. And we should note two things here. First, I think this can serve as a reminder of the appropriateness of weeping and lamentation in the face of death and loss. As Christians, we're not called to a stoic indifference or emotional detachment in the face of loss. We're not called to be like those guards in the front of Buckingham Palace with no expression of emotion. 
No, we're to weep with those who weep. We're to be like our Savior who wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Jesus wept. It's okay for there to be weeping and even loud lamentation in the face of death and loss. But instead of refusing to be comforted, we should receive the comfort that comes from the God of all comfort, the source of all comfort. And we should grieve as those who have hope as opposed to experiencing a hopeless grief. Each of our tears should be a mix of sadness and hope. Hope in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting for all who put their trust in Jesus. Second thing we should note here as we think about what Herod did, what happened to all the boys of Bethlehem, we should note the destructive nature of sin. Sin destroys. It promises to delight, it promises to deliver, it promises to satisfy, but instead it destroys. Herod's heart is already committed to his own power and position, but then sort of like the dragon smog in The Hobbit, or smaug, if you like. The fire of fury burns bright within him when he realizes he was tricked by the wise men. And in his sinful fury, he destroys the lives of all these children. He brings untold destruction on their families and their community. This is what sin does. This is actually what our sins do. Sin destroys. We may not cause death, but we do cause destruction when we sin. What kind of destruction have we caused by our sinful words when fury has burned in our hearts? How destructive is abuse? How destructive is pornography? How destructive is dishonesty? How destructive is greed? How destructive is drunkenness? How destructive is manipulation? Sin destroys. And what happened in Bethlehem should be a stark and unforgettable reminder of that to us. But again, though Herod and his sin destroyed Bethlehem's boys, God the Father providentially preserved the life of his son from Herod's fury. Herod didn't live forever. Eventually he died and Jesus and his family were able to return and let's look at that now under this third vignette we have, dwelling in Nazareth, our third and final point this morning. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
Herod sought to kill the young child, Jesus, but in the end, he himself grew old and died while Jesus lived on. He took the life of the boys of Bethlehem, but he could not keep his own life forever. J.C. Ryle comments on this. True Christians should never be greatly moved by the persecution of man. Their enemies may be strong and they may be weak, but still they ought not to be afraid. They should remember that the triumphing of the wicked is but short. What has become of the pharaohs and Nero's and Diocletians who at one time fiercely persecuted the people of God? Where is the enmity of Charles IX of France and Bloody Mary of England? They did their utmost to cast the truth down to the ground, but the truth rose again from the earth and still lives, and they are dead and moldering in their grave. Let not the heart of any believer fail. Death is a mighty leveler and can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. The Lord liveth forever. His enemies are only men. The truth shall always prevail. Like we sang together earlier, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The kingdom of Herod was only temporary. The kingdom of Christ is eternal. So we read in verse 21. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. We can understand. He sort of wondered if the apple hadn't fallen too far from the tree. So he's afraid to go back to Bethlehem. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. That's where they had been before they went to Bethlehem and then Egypt. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this last prophecy is a bit more general. There's not a verse in the Old Testament that, that says, quote, the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, end quote. Rather, this appears to be one of those themes I mentioned earlier that are like fingers pointing to Christ. And the theme is that the Messiah would be despised. Since to be called a Nazarene was to be despised. D.A. Carson explains, Nazareth was a despised place, even to other Galileans. Here Jesus grew up, not as Jesus the Bethlehemite with its Davidic overtones, but as Jesus the Nazarene with all the opprobrium of the sneer. When Christians were referred to in Acts as the Nazarene sect, the expression was meant to hurt. First century readers of Matthew who had tasted their share of scorn would have quickly caught Matthew's point. He was not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold that the Messiah would live in Nazareth. He is saying that the Old Testament prophets foretold that the Messiah would be despised. Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is telling us, did not introduce his kingdom with outward show or present himself with the pomp of an earthly monarch. 
in accord with prophecy, he came as the despised servant of the Lord. That's what we read about in Isaiah 53, isn't it? Verses two and three. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Like we're about to sing together. Man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. See, our savior was despised so that we could be loved and accepted by God. It's not that we do enough good works. Our good works outweigh our bad works in the scale and therefore God accepts us. No, both our bad works and our good works are actually on the same side of the scale, weighing against us. God says that all our righteousness is like filthy rags if we're relying on our righteousness to get us into heaven. We must repent of our bad works and of relying on our good works and put all of our trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who was despised and rejected so that we could be loved and accepted. When we repent of our sin and put our trust in him alone, his perfect life and sacrificial death counts for us and we have eternal life. Have you done that? Have you turned from your sin and put your trust in the Savior? Or are you trusting in your own works, your own deeds, your own goodness? God requires perfection, not just sincerity and a good enough effort. Don't put your trust in yourself. Put your trust in Christ. He was a Nazarene. He was despised so that we could be loved and accepted by God. So we have three vignettes here. Down to Egypt, death in Bethlehem, and dwelling in Nazareth that all tell us about Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And we see in all three stories how God the Father providentially preserved the life of his Son so that he could go on to live and die to save us from our sin. If his life had been cut short, he would not have been able to fulfill all righteousness. He would not have been able to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. All those prophecies about his death would not have been fulfilled. And our faith would be futile and we would still be in our sins. Just like if your parents had died when they were children, you would never have been born. So if Jesus had died when he was a child, you would never have been born again. But God preserved the life of his son. And he went on to fulfill his ministry and mission to save us from our sin and to give us eternal life. His preservation led to our salvation. God preserved his life so that later he could give his life 
so that you and I could have life in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for preserving the life of your son from the threat of Herod and his son, Archelaus, so that, Jesus, you could go on to fulfill your ministry and mission to save us from our sin and to give us eternal life. May we soak in this passage and all that it teaches us, especially about you and how your preservation led to our salvation. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Let's take a minute to think and pray about what we've heard and then we'll sing together.